two by two, very good. And as usual, we're all sitting in the back. Except Cindy. That's right, okay. Are you ready? Sure. Yeah? Yeah, are you? I, well, I don't know. I'll tell you at 1130. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be awake by then, yeah. Um, well, it's like, do I really have to introduce Rabbi Spitzer? Not really, and yet. The most profound thing I can say about John right now that he would appreciate the most is that he is retired. Mm -hmm. And does this because he wants to, not because he has to, for which we are very grateful. My pleasure. May we start with prayer, and then I'm going to let him take over. Gracious God, you have given us uh, words of scripture that we count as holy and surely as a gift. So bless our time now as we study, and, and bless John as he blesses us with wisdom and commitment and devotion to the things we believe uh, in the very depths of our heart. Bless us now. Amen. Amen. Oh, you don't need that. I have this. I'm, I'm very technologically challenged, so. Challenged? <laughs> challenged. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, God. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, before I begin, I'm going to be the voice of Nancy Irving saying to you, in a year and a half, this church is going to be going back to Israel in celebration of the church's anniversary. There are some people here who have made the trip. Uh, before and can tell you how wonderful it was. So I want you to start saving your nickels and dimes and quarters because it'll take a few uh, and plan on coming with us back to Israel. If God is good to me and I can still walk and think and remember stuff, I'm going to go along and enjoy that uh, sacred journey. That's number one. Number two, a little uh, promotion for a program at Walsh University uh, that is being done uh, also uh, with members of the faith community, we've been having a three-part series on gun violence in our area. The first one was two weeks ago when we studied the development of the Second Amendment. Uh, the second one was last Wednesday uh, when we talked about uh, gun violence as a public health issue and as public policy. And then this Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, at 7 o'clock in the Barrett Business and Community Center on the Walsh campus, we'll have Shante Forrester, who is the CEO of the Stark County Support Network, which is a social work agency that works in areas in our community where gun violence is a daily uh, occurrence. And uh, she's going to present you know, what an agency or organization can do to help heal a community from uh, the trauma of gun violence. The interesting thing is, is that uh, Shantae will help us understand that it's not just the person who is hit by a bullet or their family that are victims, it's also the person who pulls the trigger and their family. Everybody is impacted by that. So we encourage you to uh, come out. I hope the weather is decent uh, from 7 to 8.30 uh, on Tuesday. And then on December 3rd, which is another Tuesday, at the Star County Public Library on Market. We're going to hold a community, faith community meeting uh, and have a dialogue about what we've learned and what the issues are, about what some agencies are doing, and then brainstorming sessions of individuals who might be interested in influencing public policy or providing direct services to the communities where people are, are uh, impacted by gun violence. Hello, welcome, welcome. Or uh, uh, being involved in uh, procedures that will keep this issue in the forefront of people's conscience without having to go out and shoot five or six people. Uh, that's going to be open to the community, and we hope you'll consider coming to that. So I've pushed the Israel program. I've talked about Walsh. We might as well get started. Um, I've um, prepared... Uh, copies of my PowerPoint for you, and I've made them almost as small as I could possibly get them. So that will do uh, one of three things. It'll make you think 
that I am really able to see. Uh, but it'll also give you an opportunity if you want to go back and see some of this material later uh, to do so. So I think everybody can see the PowerPoint here. Uh, I know Rabbi Adlin presented uh, a program last week in which he talked to you about Mikraot Gedolot, which is the rabbinic commentary on the story of creation, that particular section. Mikraot Gedolot uh, is commentary by rabbis, let's just say, uh, from the uh, 12th century on, 10th and 12th century uh, on. Um, my program is going to be about Midrash. We're going to learn about Midrash, and a lot of the Midrashic material is much earlier than the material of Ibn Ezra and so on and so forth. So it, they're not exactly in sync time-wise, but that's because I was out of town last weekend had to do a wedding, uh, got to do a wedding, excuse me, had the privilege <laughs> of doing a wedding. So we're going to talk today about creation. I've entitled the program Bereshit. You can see, I'm going to see if this works. Look at that. Bereshit, which is the very first word of the uh, Hebrew Torah. Bereshit. The root of that, resh, Aleph Shin is Rosh, which means head or first. So it's often translated in the beginning, although I think Rabbi Adlin told you about the problems the rabbis had because of the uh, grammar of that word. So my program is called In the Beginning, God. And it says some theological considerations because there's not necessarily any order to this. I just want to bring out some interesting things that will help you understand uh, a Jewish understanding of this creation story. Did that work? Michael? Ah, there we go. Just have to push the right button. So I want to begin just a very, very quickly to go through again how Jewish people study Torah. Uh, there are many ways to study scripture. Uh, this happens to be a rabbinic way of studying scripture. And you'll notice that we use an acronym called PARDES. Peresh Dalet Samach. PARDES means the garden or paradise. Uh, but it's an acronym for four different levels of study. The first level is called Pshita, and that means the simple meaning the meaning that you get when you read the text very carefully, paying attention to the words that are selected, how they are written, what's there, what's not there, and so on. And we'll see a really good example of pshita uh, uh, in a few moments. When you have read the text slowly and carefully, we peel away that layer, and we find the layer of remez. Remez means the illusion. It's what happens when you look at a text and scratch your head and say, you know, there's something more there than meets the eye. I wonder what it is. What does it allude to? Then the third layer is called drash, and drash is the interpretation or the explanation. And the layer of drash is very, very thick. It's very deep, and it continues to grow each and every day, year an epoch. Why? Uh, because the example I use is that studying text is like an algebraic equation where you have x, y, z, and all the variables, and then a constant and an equal sign with an answer. So the, const the, the uh, uh, equation for us is person, place, time, and problem. Those are the variables because I'm a different person now than I was 10 years ago. Uh, I might be in a different place physically, emotionally, or spiritually than I was then. Um, person, place. Time is now, and problem is whatever I'm facing at this particular time. Those are the variables. The constant is Torah, is the text. And whenever you change any of the variables, the outcome can be different. Um, so the drosh is something that we continue to add to today. 
And finally, the rabbis said the last part of Pardes was sowed the secret or the foundation because they believed that the Torah is the blueprint for God's creation. You'll hear that in this story that I'm going to tell you a little bit later. And that as the blueprint for God's creation, if you study it well, and if you are a pure instrument, pious, so on and so forth, you will be able to parse the secrets of the foundations of the world. And then the most important thing, um, many people study scripture because they want to find out what does it mean? Tell me the truth. I want to get to its real meaning. But Midrash is not going to give you the last word of interpretation. It's going to give you the next word of interpretation because you might look at the text next year and find it you know, meaningful in a different way. So Midrash is a very dynamic kind of thing. Now, I will tell you before we go to this slide that there are two kinds of Midrashim, two kinds of Midrash. There is Midrash Halacha, interpretation that has to do with law. And there's Midrash Agada, the Midrash that has to do with parsing the meanings and understandings, the stories and interpretations of the text. What I'm going to be talking about, if I ever get to it, is Midrash Agadah, those stories that help us understand some theological perspectives. But first, uh, so we're going to go through this, but then I'm going to give you just a little picture of Midrash Halacha. So this is from Sifrei to Deuteronomy. Sifrei is a collection of Midrashim, and it says, those who look for scripture's inherent meaning, the meaning that lives there, inherent meaning say, if you wish to know God by whose word the word came into being, study scripture's homiletical interpretations in the Agadot. Agadot is the plural of Agadah, and it's the same word that you hear in the word Haggadah, the Passover book that tells the story of Passover. So if you want to know God's word, then you ought to pay attention to the Agadot. You will thereby come to know the Holy One, blessed be God, and hold fast to God's ways. So it's a humanizing of the text. This is from Shir Hashirim Rabbah which is the Midrash to the Song of Songs. What do you know about Song of Songs? It's beautiful love poetry. Why does it fit into the Bible? Because somebody said, ah, God is the lover and Israel is the beloved. What a beautiful interpretation. Keep that in mind. Do not let the parable appear of little worth to you. Through a parable, a man can fathom words of Torah. Consider a king, and here we go to our own little parable, okay? Consider a king who has lost a gold coin or a precious pearl in his house. May he not find it through the light of a wick worth only an isar? An isar is like a penny. Likewise, do not let the parable appear of little value to you. By its light, a man may fathom words of Torah. And those of you, which I assume is all of you, who study New Testament, know that Jesus often speaks in parables, and the parables are what get you closer to the intention and the feeling of God's presence in the text. So the word drash means the interpretation, and from the word drash we get midrash. You can see here Dalad Reshin, you can see here, Dalad Reshin, Midrash, is a genre of rabbinic literature first committed to writing in the second century of the Common Era, which seeks to delve into the meaning of the text through the use of analogic discourse and hermeneutic laws. I put those in there so that you would think I was smart. <laughs> I had to look them up too. Analogic discourse, discourse by analogy, and hermeneutic laws. 
So let's take a look at what that means. Jacob Neusner, a contemporary scholar, uh, writes that Midrash is a process which he says has three different types or parts. Number one, to paraphrase. He takes a look at a text and he tells it, the Midrash tells it in different words to make it more accessible. Number two, prophecy. Reading the text as an account of something that will, uh, will happen, a prophetic kind of uh, proclamation. And finally, parable or, or analogy, indicating deeper meanings of the words of the text as speaking of something other than the superficial meaning of the words. In other words, analogic discourse or speaking in, in analogies allows us to sink within the text, immerse ourselves in the text. I've used the analogy here before. Uh, it's like water skiers. A water skier goes very fast and skims across the surface because if he slows down or she slows down, they sink. Well, Midrash wants you to slow down, wants you to immerse yourself in the text and find its various levels of meaning. Now, I mentioned to you before uh, Midrash Halacha, Midrash about law, um, uh, which is the same kind of interpretation, but it's concerned with the, the um, promulgation of biblical law. The word for Jewish law is halacha, comes from the root halach, which means to walk. In other words, it's the way one walks or goes to fulfill God's commandments. And uh, in the uh, second century, late second century, Rabbi Ishmael and Rabbi Hillel began to develop hermeneutic principles. Christians talk about hermeneutics all the time. Uh, Jews say, huh? But if you study Talmud, you have to know the hermeneutic principles. And there are a number of them. And I've just given you three as an example. The first one is called Kal Chomer. Kal means light. Chomer means the, the clay or the substance of something. And this particular law that they developed is called Kal Chomer, or you can reverse it, Chomer Vachal. Kal Chomer means from the light instance to the heavy instance. So if I say to you, when you go to McDonald's, a light kind of situation, do not take a straw because it litters the environment. If that's true in a simple thing like going to McDonald's, how much the more so about the waste from your chemical factory? Call the Homer. If it applies in the simple case, it will apply in the more weighty situation. Or Homer Vachal. If you have something that applies in a weighty situation, how much the more so in this simple situation. A second one is called Gezerah Shava, which means a decree of equivalence. Uh, this may be described as an argument by analogy, which infers from the similarity of two cases that the legal decision given in one holds in the other. If we talk about penalties required for speed limits in the city, how much the more so does that, does that apply to speed limits uh, on uh, uh, the turnpike? They are Gezerah Shava. They are de declared to be similar. And the last one, Binyan Av Mikatuv Echad. A Binyan is a building, a construction, a major construction from a single verse. So if I have a principle that's articulated by a single verse, uh, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath, good King James English, um, that one construction can fit over many situations. It's just a matter of deciding, you know, what does work constitute? So in Midrash Halacha, the interpretations grow out of a set of rules. It doesn't mean that you can do anything that you want. My people always say, they, they read something, but not knowing the rules, they figure, how do they get there? They can do anything they want. Well, you can't do anything you want. You have to follow the rules. So uh, what do scholars, uh, what the scholars will tell you? Uh, we have a number of different creation stories uh, and here's a, a couple of them that I've copied out of that 
a sacred text called Wikipedia. Um, another ancient creation myth is the Imanu Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. This epic is one of the most important sources of under, for understanding Babylonian worldview. Over several clay tablets, it describes the creation of the world, a battle between gods focused on the supremacy of Marduk, the creation of man who is destined to be of service to the Mesopotamian gods. And it doesn't mean service like we'll do God's ethical bidding. It means, you know, bring me a cup of wine, will you? Uh, that kind of thing. There's the uh, story of Tiamat, the goddess of the salt, uh, salt sea. And in that story, there is a battle between Tiamat and others. Tiamat is slayed, this sea monster. And in being slayed, uh, the carcass is divided into several parts. And as it decays, the world comes forth. We come forth from this putrefying body. The Genesis story is considerably different. Uh, the Genesis story does not start uh, with some kind of battle or evil or human emotioned God, small g. It's a very ordered, very simple, uh, very structured kind of story. And uh, I've started by uh, talking about, uh, about sevens. Many people think that this is an ancient story that was told around the fires by you know, Hebrew nomads in the wilderness, frightened of all the things round about them, and they told these sort of divine stories. Uh, and if you ever spend a little time to read the introduction to Genesis in your study Bible, uh, some of this stuff comes from the Jewish study Bible, it tells you in a few paragraphs some fabulously interesting things about how intricately constructed, purposefully constructed the Genesis story is. So I call this a bit about sevens. We know that the first part of Genesis talks about creation in seven days. And if we read the text carefully, we will notice that seven times God says, it says, and God saw that it was good. Two days that's missing, but it's spoken about twice on the subsequent days, seven times it says. And the word God appears 35 times, which is seven times five. I even know that from my Nebraska education. And the seventh day about Shabbat in Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is described in 35 words, five times seven. That's not coincidence. Uh, this is very wittingly put together. So here are some observations and suggestions. There are other creation scenarios in the Hebrew Bible which don't relate to seven days. For example, we don't read about the Sabbath after Genesis 2 until we get to Exodus 20. Apparently, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know about Shabbat. Apparently, the Jews in uh, Egyptian slavery didn't know about Shabbat. It wasn't actually decreed until the first expression of the Decalogue. There is great similarity in the seven-day creation story to the story of the creation of the Mishkan, the tent of meeting. After the Ten Commandments uh, are given, the, the ten words on Mount Sinai, the rest of Exodus is a detailed discussion of the building plans for that tent of meeting in the wilderness. And when you think about those plans, you, pardon me, will think, I, I believe, uh, about how it's structured. The first thing that was created was this curtain wall that would keep the ordinary stuff of the world away from the holy space that, that was the Mishkan where God would dwell. And as you move closer and closer and closer, uh, to the actual tent itself, there were different uh, uh, precincts or regions where people could go that were inhabited by different ritual objects, by an altar, a basin, a candelabra, and so on, until finally one would get to the holiest place where only the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, could go. It's very, could go. It's very structured. 
And when you look at that and think about the way the world was created in seven days, precincts were created, heaven and earth, uh, and then all of a sudden the inhabitants of the precincts were created, stars and animals and trees and so on, until finally the human being is created about four o'clock on Friday, and Saturday God says, wow, what a week. So there's a great similarity to that. And there's also a great similarity to the uh, construction of Solomon's temple, which is now no longer the portable sanctuary, but becomes kind of a temple home where God causes God's name to dwell. Same kind of structure, uh, same kind of precincts, same kind of ordering. And therefore, uh, the activities also... God blesses in creation. God creates boundaries, creates precincts, creates order, and so on and so forth. And so many of the um, rabbis would say that this story, that's not the rabbis, the, uh, the scholars would say, that this story of the creation, because it seems to really come forth out of the life of the uh, priestly people, and out of a time when uh, the construction of religious places was ordered and so on, this story of creation is probably a P story. I'm sure you've heard about the documentary hypothesis. Do you all, you all know a little bit about the documentary hypothesis? How many want to hear a little bit about the documentary hypothesis? Okay. A little bit. Just a little bit. Um, the documentary hypothesis suggests that the Hebrew Bible that we have today was not written by one guy and then sent into Random House for publishing. It says, suggest, rather suggests that it is a redacted work, that there were a number of different legend stories and texts around that someone came together and uh, put the uh, different texts together. Uh, and the people that started with uh, two guys by the name of Graf and Verhausen. Uh, German people, because German people, they can do minute work. I mean, they're, they're called yekis. They wear jackets and they do minute work. Uh, so uh, the Graf Wellhausen hypothesis, the documentary hypothesis, suggests that there are perhaps four major documents that are put together in Hebrew Bible. One is called the J school, J for Yahweh, because Germans don't know how to pronounce J, J, they pronounce it Ya, Ya Vol, uh, or, or Volkswagen or whatever. Um, that's not a kind of J in it anywhere, does it? Um, move on. Move on. <laughs> uh, sometimes I amaze myself with my inappropriateness. Um, so the J school is characterized by a number of things, not the least of which is using the name for God the four-letter name, the yud he vav he, yud being the J sound in, in German. Uh, uh, there is an E school. This has its own stuff, uh, but it's characterized, they say, by using the name Elohim for God. The D school, which looks at the book of Deuteronomy as being perhaps its own organic uh, book, uh, and finally, the P school, which is the priestly school. When the priests looked back and talked about what is important to us, how do we structure the Jewish world, and they suggest that perhaps this book, this is the strange thing, which starts Bereshit bara Elohim, is probably a story from the P school, not the E school. I don't understand it either. Okay, so our first bit of theology the book of Genesis begins, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning God. In many ancient uh, societies, like Greek societies, there were attempts to prove God, to show uh, different kinds of formulas that would tell you that God is real. Hebrew Bible doesn't start with the proof of God or the deduction of God. It begins with the assumption of God that we exist and our existence proves that we are created and that God is the creator. 
How do we uh, approach the text? This is that first letter, the letter bet. I love this. I've never been able to use a pointer. So uh, if you were doing Midrashic stuff, what would you learn from the letter bet? Could you perhaps find some profound meaning in the letter bet? See, I printed this so small that you can't really look at the next line and tell what it is. Well, look at this. The letter bet is closed at the top. It's closed at the back. It's closed at the bottom. It's open only in the direction of reading. Hebrew going from right to left. Which means, by analogy, do not question what is above creation, what is below creation, or what is before creation. We as finite beings can only comprehend and meaningfully talk about what happens from the instant of in the beginning or when God created. That our minds haven't got the capacity to go beyond that finite idea. So, for example, how do we know that? Here's a little bit from Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. That's a rhetorical question. You weren't, and you don't understand. And then it goes through with Job that, uh, you know, it's almost mocking. What? You know, you don't know this. You should know that. But it's this concept that finite minds can struggle in vain to think about what did God do the moment before creation? Um, we can't know that. Uh, uh, we can speculate, but we can't know that. The rabbis do speculate about it. They say God read Torah, so uh, that's a good thing. So here's a story, analogic discourse. We know that we talk about the Hebrew alphabet Alphabet, alphabet. Aleph is the first letter. Bet is the second letter. The letter Aleph, you see the Aleph, right? I did that wrong. That did that right. The letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the alphabet, seeing that God created the world with the letter Bet, Bereshit, the second letter of the alphabet, felt slighted. So the Aleph convened a Din Torah, a rabbinic court, to bring its complaint to the Holy One. Sovereign of the world, the Aleph pleaded, am I not the first letter of the alphabet? And yet when you came to create the world, you passed by me and created it with the Bet Bereshit. The Holy One, blessed be God, contemplated the justice of Aleph's complaint and responded, you have spoken rightly. Therefore, when I come to deliver Torah on Sinai, I will begin with you. And the first letter of those commandments is Anochi Adonai. And you'll notice that, push the right one, Anochi starts with the letter Aleph. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. What is this story about? What time do I have to end, Michael? Huh? At the end? Oh, 10.15. I thought you said at the end. I was ready to go until lunch. Um, what is this story ab about? Why do the olive and bet make a difference? Anybody want to guess? Say again. Sovereignty, that's a nice idea. That's what we say when we haven't gotten to where I want to go. That's a nice idea. But just injustice, yes, yes. But it's really a question about when was creation finished? Some people would say creation was finished on the sixth day after, after you know, God created the human being on the sixth day. God rested, so it took six days to make that. Some people would say, well, it's on the seventh day. God hadn't created rest on the Sabbath yet. 
Some people would say, not then. It wasn't finished until following the flood because God recreated the world. Some people would say, how could you say that creation was finished because God hadn't you know, called Abraham and created a covenant with uh, the Jewish people and humankind? But the rabbis want you to say the last element that is necessary for the world to get kick-started and move on down the road is Mount Sinai because that's when God reveals God's self to all humanity. Mount Sinai, the rabbis tell us, uh, is not the highest mountain, not the most prestigious mountain. It's the mountain in the middle of the wilderness, a place where everybody can go. You don't have to be Jewish or Muslim or Christian or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever. Anybody can go there. And so when God reveals God's self on Mount Sinai, human beings have everything they need to make a world. And we get that from this argument between an Aleph and a Bet. I love that. There's a famous Midrash about the creation of human beings. When God was about to create the first human beings, the angels split up into contending groups. Some said, let humanity be created. And others said, do not let humanity be created, be created. The angels divided into smaller camps to press their case. One camp representing the attribute of compassion, compassion said, create human beings because they will perform deeds of kindness. The opposing camp said, representing shalom or peace said, do not create human beings because they will be violent. At which point, the group representing righteousness or tzedek said, let human beings be created because they will pursue justice. And then the group representing truth stepped forward and said, do not create human beings because they'll be liars. At which point God took truth and cast it into the ground. As it says in Proverbs, truth will sprout from the earth. And so the path will be, was clear for humanity to appear. So it's clear in this Midrash, the rabbis were talking about the two dimensions of human life, the good part and the part that's not so good. We make choices in life. What would God do? And it says God cast truth to the ground. So what do we learn from this Midrash? This is not liked by theology professors at Malone University. Maybe it was not liked by you, I don't know. Say that again? It's like, who was right? We do both of those things, there's no question about it. Do we have any proverbial liars in the group here? Perpetual liars, people who could never tell the truth? Has anybody in this group ever told even a small fib? I can't reach high enough. <laughs> but has anybody in this group who's told even a small fib done something good for another person, helped another person? Put a hand out to another. Of course we have. Of course we have. So what does it mean to cast truth to the earth? I mentioned up there also justice. And the rabbi said, you know, if God judged human beings only by the attribute of justice, none of us could stand. It is a foundation. It's Say again. They do, but it has to be human. It has to be earthly. It's not absolute. When you serve on a jury, it's not a simple thing just to plug all the stuff in and say guilty or not guilty. You have to bring a whole variety of influences to bear before you find the truth. So in this it says, if God indeed judged us only by the attribute of justice, 
or only by the attribute of pure truth, then none of us would be able to exist. The angels that said, don't create human being. We want a world that is filled with fruit and flowers and grass, but not people. So what does God do? God casts that absolute attribute down to the earth so that it becomes worldly. I say the people at Malone don't like that because they don't like something that we call relative truth. They think truth has to be absolute. So here's another expression. And it's the same kind of, uh, same kind of story. When creation was about uh, all but ended, the world with uh, its grandeur and splendor stood out in its glorious beauty. Uh, there was but one thing waiting to consummate the marvelous work called into existence by let there be. In other words, God says many times, let there be. And bingo, it is. And the thing that wasn't called into existence by let there be was a creature with thought and understanding able to behold, reflect, and marvel on this great handiwork of God who now sat on the divine throne surrounded by hosts of angels and seraphim singing hymns before him. And God said, not let there be, but let us make man in our likeness. You know, we talked about that remez, that illusion. As you're reading the text slowly, all of a sudden you sort of trip over that. Everywhere else, God says, let there be, let there be, let there be. And all of a sudden, let us make man, human beings. The language is different. That must suggest something. So let us make man uh, a creature not only of the product of earth, but also gifted with heavenly spiritual elements, which will bestow on him reason, intellect, and understanding. And while they were pleading against the creation of man, there was heard arising from another part of the heavens, the soft voice of charity, which goes through and says, look, God, when you uh, uh, create human being, you will see a, create a creature uh, seeking to perform his great mission, to do his noble work. I see human beings now in spirit approaching the humble hut, seeking out those who are distressed and wretched to comfort them, uh, drying the tears of the afflicted, yada, 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 talking all about the rabbinic virtues, the Jewish virtues, or you could say Christian virtues. They're all the same, that we will go out and we will embrace other human beings. The creator approved of the pleading of charity called man into being and cast truth down to the earth uh, to flourish there, as it says, and so on and so forth. What we get from these midrashim is an interesting thing. Here's another thing about the Rabbi Berechio, the creator is a wicked man, the issue forth from his, what did the Holy One do? He diverted the way of the wicked from before his sight, and partnered with the attribute of mercy, saying to it, let us, God and the attribute of mercy, make man. This is even clearer. This is you saying to me, how can you do this thing? It'll be a terrible thing, all kinds of trouble. And what God will do is say, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not, no, 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 no. And creating human beings anyway. So these Midrashim say, in all their various types, God wanted us. We're not an accident. We're not creatures like cows or koala bears, the beautiful thing on today's show about koala bears. God, knowing that we could possibly make wrong choices, created us because God loves us and wanted us. Now, here is another instance of close reading. When we take a look at chapter 2, verse 7, the verse says, Vaitsar Adonai Elohim et Adam. And God uh, formed the human being from earth and so on and so forth. And a careful reading of this takes a look at this word, 
Vaitsar, and how it is spelled, Vav, Yud, Yud, Tzadi, Resh. Why is that interesting? Because Vaitsar, with two Yuds, is spelled that way only once in the entire Hebrew Bible. It's normatively spelled like this, with one Yud. See the difference between that and that? So what we have here is a hapax legomena. That's another one of those things that makes you not smart. And I said here, I, I'm going to digress for a moment and tell you a story about Joe Rosenblum. Rabbi Rosenblum uh, was uh, my biblical Hebrew teacher at Washington University 50-some years ago. And uh, Joe was a, a neat guy. He smoked Cuban cigars back then. He wore leather pants. He was just amazing. He was also convinced that I would never be a rabbi because I was not a very, very good Hebrew student, I must tell you. But I do remember that towards the end of the winter semester, Joe used that word, hapax legomena, uh, and it told me what, the, you know, what a hapax legomenon means is a word that appears in that form only once in the entire Bible. So I went to Cincinnati for my uh, admissions interview uh, uh, in the early spring, and I sat before the interview committee, which was uh, about eight or ten people asking you questions. And some of those eight or ten people were students, and they felt, <laughs> we have the power of life and death over this person. <laughs> and you know, I did fair in my interview, I think, and then somebody said, what is a hapax legomenon? <laughs> and I said, it's a word that appears only once in Torah. And bingo, I got into HUC. <laughs> God bless them. So here we have a, a term, vaitsar, who this one place is spelled with two Hebrew letter yuds. And we ask the question, why two yuds? To teach that God, whose name is abbreviated as Yud Yud, you'll see that in our prayer book all the time, and you see that embedded in this word, that God formed us to teach us that God is within us. We are not distinct from God. We are part of God. That spirit or soul is within us. Secondly, to teach us that we are formed with two Yitzrot. Yitzrot, uh, two inclinations or formations. One is called the Yetzer Hara, that first Yud, which literally means the evil inclination or the bad inclination, but colloquially means the animal inclination. And the other is the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination. Think about that for a moment in terms of the midrash that we just uh, midrashim that we just saw. That you know, how do we know there will be some bad things that come from us? There'll be some good things because we have these two inclinations within us. The rabbis tell us that without the yetsahara, without that animal inclination, a person wouldn't create a home to shelter themselves. They wouldn't get a business or do work to produce food for themselves, they wouldn't procreate, they wouldn't do all of those things that animals do naturally. You look out your window in the middle of winter and you see a little fox running around, the fox knows what to do to stay alive, naturally. But the Yetzer Tov, the good inclination is the part of us that studies, that learns, that is compassionate, that makes decisions that are ethical, that uh, worships and glorifies uh, the deity, and so on and so forth. So in this one, uh, one hapax legomena, we learn some really profound things about the rabbi's view about human anthropology. I'm almost at the end. My timing is good. We can have questions. 
If we look at Pirkei Avot, the ethics of the fathers, again, um, a, a bit of uh, rabbinic literature that is part of the Mishnah, which was codified at the beginning of the third century, the end of the second century. It says, 10 things were created on the eve of Shabbat at twilight. These are the mouth of the earth, where it swallowed up Korach, that rebellious guy. The mouth of the well, Miriam's well, which followed our people in the wilderness and provided water uh, for the Israelites. The mouth of the donkey, Bilaam's ass. Uh, the rainbow, the manna, Moses' staff, the shamir. The shamir was supposed to be a, a uh, legendary worm that could eat stone. And since you couldn't build the temple using metal implements, the shamir worm cut the stones. Pretty clever. Pretty clever. Uh, and the writing of the Ten Commandments and Torah, the inscription and the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Here's another version of that. The manna, the rainbow, and so on and so forth. These rabbinic uh, numerologies, uh, because this last book of Pirkei chapter 5, deals in numbers, threes, fours, sevens, tens, and gives all kinds of lists and things. Um, I think what the rabbis are saying in these lists, it's not that before the moment of in the beginning, there was actually the holy throne. But I think what they're saying is that when God came to create the world, everything that was necessary was there at least in potential. If you invite me back to do uh, a program on a second bite of the apple, the naked truth about Eden, I will show you that whole concept of what is in potential coming into reality as we move through the story of creation. So this becomes, in a sense, another answer to that question, when was creation finished? And the answer is, the moment God thought of it. When God said, mm, we were done, because it was actually either actual actualization or it was in potential that would be realized. I think that's my last slide. No, there's more. This, that's the last slide. And that's the same thing. Okay. So, some ideas about uh, Genesis and creation. Comments, questions, or are we done? Questions, please. Midrash you've been describing. The Midrash you've been describing. That's My not a question. Is, does that not reflect our human nature, the good and the evil? Absolutely. Because the Midrash, the rabbis were very concerned about nuances. When you read the Talmud, Rabbi so-and-so will say, the answer is A. And then Rabbi so-and-so will say, well, but what about in this case? What about in this case? And it will go back and forth and back and forth because of that nuanced nature. Um, and it's not that things are always more than they appear. Uh, although Father Manning, who works at Walsh in the office across the hall from me, uh, has on the bottom of his email, the great truth is that everything is always about something else. And I think that that's really a great truth. Uh, so, yes, it does reflect our human nature because that's the only lens that we can use to look at the world. Please. Who? What? Right here. Here. Yeah. Where? <laughs> I, uh, 
right here. There, because I'm deaf and this year I don't have any idea. There you are. Thank you. The, it was interesting to hear the hermeneutics. Hermeneutics in, in the Calvinistic Presbyterian tradition, very similar. And that the, there's the thus saith the Lord, that didactic teaching, that would have been the third one on your right. page. And then the case law, the casuistic law, because of this, you do this. And then, as you said, like in the court law, court of law, the third one is, we've just got to have some common sense because not everything is prescribed. Neither Old or New Testament would say anything about computers. Do we know truth about computers? Yes, from the scriptures, going through that three ways of looking at it. So we cannot do what we want to do as you said, and I just appreciated your insight on well, that. Well, I, I, I happen to like the way you, you, you put it. You put it better than I could put it. It seems to suggest that we are not able to calcify the truth of Scripture back then. And back then could be when it was written or when the uh, doctors of the church set it up with a council or whatever. It's always alive. It's always malleable. Some people don't like malleability. They think, oh my goodness, I don't know where I'm going to stand, whether the ground will be firm. But it always gives us the next step. It's always applicable. Any other questions or comments, please? Please. Your last comment reminds me of a comment I once heard made by a previous general presbyter of this presbyterian about the Reformed tradition, that the Reformed tradition is always reforming. Uh, and that we have the same thing. Uh, we have a book called Reform is a Verb. It's not a noun. The Reform tradition, well, that's what happened there. But it's always reforming. It's always trying to find relevance. And that's why we talk about immersing ourselves in the text. Am I done? One more comment, please. So that creation hasn't ended? No, it hasn't ended. We are still creating yes and god is still leading that creation Uh, yes yes and we see it in animals we call it evolution but in people the evolution of our own understanding you just opened up this is my final uh, analogy i read the script (laughs) how many of us have ever used a gps got it in our phones it's in our pockets we think my, it's not my pocket because I left my phone at home. I, I would like to say because I can de-screen so easily, it's, I forgot it. But if you'll notice, the GPS has where you are now and where you want to go. But every time you follow it, it doesn't always go by the same route. So God, who creates this world and knows where it will end up, has created human beings to have the power of choice so that our path towards that end might be different. And like the GPS, each of us will get there, I hope each of us will get there, in our own particular route. So I I like that. I think that's a good one. Take that home with you and try it out in your Bible. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your attention. I call on you. I would just ask a favor, and I did this last week. Would you dismiss us in Hebrew? Shalom, no. Yes, I would be honored to. Shall we, uh, let's rise for a moment. And you may sing. I've heard him sing. He's wonderful. (laughs) Not so much. In the book of Numbers... God instructs through Moses, his brother Aaron, the first of the priests, to bless the people uh, with these three phrases. May God bless you and keep you safe physically from this time as you go forth. May the warmth of God's countenance shine into your lives and be gracious to you. May God give you graciously the things that you need to live, the things that you need to prosper. As you go from this place 
May God lift up God's favor and countenance to you. And may God give you shalom, a sense of wholeness, completeness, and peace. Amen.